Let's open our Bibles tonight to Luke chapter number 12. Luke chapter number 12. What a privilege it is to be with you on prayer meeting night. Amen. I still believe in prayer meeting. Amen. I believe we need it. I believe that we desperately need it. I believe if the devil can get at us between Monday and Saturday, and the only time we're meeting with God is on a Sunday, I believe we're going to be in a mess. Amen. Really, if we were being honest, we probably ought to have a Monday night and a Tuesday night and a Thursday night and a Friday night and a Saturday. Around here, sometimes it feels like we do that. Amen. But I'm proud to be with you on prayer meeting night. Luke chapter number 12, and I'd like to begin reading in verse number 22. Luke chapter number 12. Verse number 22, the word of God says that he, that Jesus said unto his disciples, therefore I say unto you, take no thought for your life, what ye shall eat, uh, neither for the body, what ye shall put on. The life is more than meat, and the body is more than raiment. Consider the ravens, for they neither sow nor reap, which neither have storehouse nor barn, and God feedeth them. How much more are ye better than the fowls? And which of you, with taking thought, can add to his stature one cubit? If ye then be not able to do that thing which is least, why take ye thought for the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They toil not, they spin not, and yet I say unto you that Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. If then God so clothed the grass, which is today in the field and tomorrow is cast into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O ye of little faith? And seek not ye what ye shall eat, or what ye shall drink, neither be ye of doubtful mind. For all these things do the nations of the world seek after. And your Father knoweth that ye have need of these things. But rather seek ye the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added unto you. Let's pray together. Lord, we love you and thank you for this opportunity. Now bless your word. Bless it in the hearts of your people. Bless it in your pulpit, Father, in the in the words of, of your servant. And I pray that, Lord, in all things Christ might receive glory and that you might arrest our, our mind, our focus, our spirit, our will, and fix it upon thee. We'll be sure to thank you for it, Lord. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Four times in the gospel record, the Lord Jesus rebukes the faithlessness of his disciples. This message tonight began as really a small part of a, of a larger message. And as uh, is often the case when I began to sit and study and meditate upon these things, uh, God just began to uh, develop and develop and develop and develop. And uh, pretty soon you realize that you've got more sermon than you do time. And uh, really what my heart was tonight is to preach to you on what we need for 2020. Uh, there's a lot of things we might think we need for this year that we really don't need. There's probably some things that we think we need for 2020 that really, if we were to be honest, we need to not have those things. In other words, not just that they're not a necessity, but they might be a detriment to us. And then there's probably some things that we really don't think we have great need of. And maybe in some of those things, we find the things that we, in fact, have the greatest need of in our lives. Uh, very often, I think we embody what the Word of God says about casting pearls before swines, meaning that we are the swines sometimes. And uh, the reason that that uh, edification, that exhortation is given is because you throw a pearl at a swine, uh, they think you've thrown a rock at it. They can't, they can't appreciate the value in that precious stone. And I think a great many things in our life that coming into this year we may think we need, we probably don't. But I do believe there are some things that we desperately are in need of uh, for the 2020 year. If we want this year to count for God, and let me just say as, a, as just a little introduction, uh, if it's even that, uh, that's a question we're going to have to answer. Do we want this year to count for God? Uh, 
Uh, I believe that we probably want it to count for something. But do we really want it to count for God? Uh, Do we intend on seeing gains in 2020 in our walk with God, in our in our appearance of, of Christ in our lives? Is that what we're seeking? Is that what we're longing for? If you're like me, you've got goals and you've got things that you desire to see happen in 2020. But I hope that a chief, a preeminent component of those goals is that I want this year to count for God. Uh, listen, 2020 is going to be a year we're going to be held into account for. One day we're going to stand at the judgment seat of Christ. And what we've done this this upcoming year is going to be called into reckoning. We're going to have to give an account for it. I want it to count for God. And so I began to think about some things it'll take to make that happen. And God laid three things on my heart in, in particular. One is uh, we need focus. We need focus in 2020. All around us, in, in the world around us, things are clamoring for our attention, trying to draw our attention away from the Lord Jesus Christ. It's amazing, man. In about two days, we, we've went from not having a war to having a war to the war being over. Amen. And uh, that's just that's just half a news cycle, you know. Uh, and I, I don't make light, of course, of the uh, of the perilous nature of, of the situation we find ourselves in. But I just mean to say that, man, it seems like everywhere you look, there's buzzers and sirens and flashing lights, and the world is just constantly trying to draw our heart away from Jesus Christ. We need focus if we want this year to count for Christ. And then I thought about the idea of faithfulness. We need faithfulness. Uh, Nobody's ever done anything worth doing, anything meaningful, and done it halfway and had the result that, that, that they needed or that they hoped for. It's going to have to take dedication to the Lord. We're going to have to make up our mind He's more important than everything else. That's not to say that the Lord is the only thing, but he's sure enough the most important thing. You say, what do you mean, preacher? Well, we have jobs, we have we have ambitions, we have things we want to see happen. And I don't think God's against any of those things, Uh, not unless they're intrinsically sinful. But we need we need to settle in our hearts what the main thing is. The main thing in our lives ought to be serving the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's going to take faithfulness in order to accomplish that goal. And then tonight I want us to think about this first thought, and I just want to take a few moments of your time, and I want to talk about the faith that we need for 2020. Anything done for God requires faith. Faith is the means. It is the, it is the process. It is the, it is the standard upon which the kingdom of God and the work of God operates. Anything that's not done in faith, Paul said, whatsoever is not of faith is sin. He that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is the rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. Why? Because without faith, it's impossible to please Him. If what you're doing does not contain or require or demand faith, uh, then it may not be displeasing to God, but at, at the very minimum, it's something that God is not necessarily pleased with. It requires faith in order to live the Christian life. And so I began to think about places where men had faith, where they did not have faith, places where faith seemed to be at the forefront. And I began to think about these four occasions in the gospel record in which the Lord actually rebukes the faithlessness of his disciples. Now, again, every element of our life requires faith if we're going to live our life for Christ. But in these four occasions, the Lord drew attention to the lack of faith in his followers and said, this is a problem if you're going to live for me. And I think these are four areas that in 2020 we're going to have to learn to trust God. And four areas that if we want this year to count, we're going to have to have faith. So the first this evening, I want us to say that uh, we're going to have to have faith to trust God's provision. 
In Luke chapter number 12, the Lord is teaching a myriad of things. And some of this truth can be found in the Sermon on the Mount. Some of it in Luke's account uh, is contained right here. And in fact, what we have read this evening in our opening text comes immediately after the parable of the rich fool. And Christ, in teaching the parable of the rich fool, his intention was not to vilify uh, frugality, nor was it to vilify uh, people making financial preparations. You see, the problem with the rich fool was not that he had a bumper crop. It was not that he had a great crop. I mean, hey, who gave him that crop? God gave him that crop. It wasn't that he built barns. Uh, God's not against building barns. In fact, there are several parables where God lauds the idea of preparedness and of making provision, of, of counting the cost, of, of seeing what it's going to take to do something and making preparation. You can go through the book of Proverbs and see where Solomon exhorts us to the wisdom of saving money and of being cautious with our finances. I would say this, the problem with the rich young, or the rich fool was not that he died, because guess what? We're all going to die one day. The, the reason the rich fool was a fool was because he lived for this present life while completely ignoring and dismissing the life that he was about to enter into. He allowed those riches to be a substitute for righteousness. He allowed the barns full of fruits to be a substitute for a heart that had God in it. And he neglected what was uh, soon to be his destiny, which was to stand face to face with God, that's what it says in verse 20. God said unto him, thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. And in that context, the Lord Jesus turns to his disciples in particular. In verse 16 of this chapter, it says he spake a parable unto them, meaning to the people. But in verse number 22, he turns specifically to his disciples and he exhorts them about how they are to approach this matter of financial well-being and wholeness and soundness. Notice what he says, verse 22. Therefore, I say unto you, take no thought for your life, what ye shall eat, neither for the body, what ye shall put on. Notice verse 23, the life is more than meat and the body is more than raiment. Can I stop and make a statement here? He doesn't say that the life is not meat. He doesn't say the life is not raiment. So what do you mean by that, preacher? Well, I don't believe it's the will of God for us all to walk around naked and skinny. Amen? He's not rebuking having those things. But he is saying it is, in fact, more than those things. In other words, if you have those things and have nothing else to go along with it, meaning things that are not temporal, things that are not physical, but things that are beyond that, then you're just as bankrupt as if you had absolutely nothing. He points to the ravens and says that though they do not sow nor reap, God provides for them. He uh, points to the uh, lilies in the field and says though they do not toil or spin, God clothes them uh, with raiment more beautiful than what Solomon's riches could ever procure. He reminds them in verse 25 that they cannot, by taking thought, add a, a, a cubit to your stature, that you have no ability through worry and anxiety to change your circumstances. And in the context of all of that, look at verse 29. He says, Seek not ye what ye shall eat or what ye shall drink, neither be ye of, notice this word, doubtful mind. Of doubtful mind. He says down in uh, verse number 31, Seek ye the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added unto you. In Matthew's account, it says, seek ye first the kingdom of God. In other words, what he's saying is this, that if we're going to live for God, we're going to have to have the faith to believe that God can provide for us, can meet our needs. That if God is able to spend so beautiful clothing and vestiges for the lilies that 
or there one day and die the next, if he's able to meet the needs of a sparrow of which there are untold billions or a, a raven of which there are untold billions flying around the earth and he's able to meet every one of their needs, then surely God has the means to meet your need and my need. There are a great many people that will waste 2020 either worrying over whether or not they will have what they need or working at the expense of spiritual development to try to procure things that God has the means to provide for them through his grace. Now, again, I'm not saying God expects you to quit your job. I'm not saying it's wrong for you to work and to labor. In fact, Paul reminds us that if a man doesn't work, that he ought not eat. That if a man doesn't provide for his family, he's worse than an infidel and he's denied the faith. But never once in Scripture does God call any of us to worry. Never once does he command us to fret or to mistrust him or distrust him or to be of doubtful mind. Here's what I'm saying. If you're going to make 2020 count for God, you're going to have to recognize that every need that you have, God has the means to provide for. And so you can either spend this next year obsessing over meeting those temporal needs or you can spend this next year watching God grow and develop your faith by seeing Him meet needs day in, day out in your life. Sometimes in, in concert with your hard work and labor. Sometimes in spite of a lack of means to provide for your, through your own hard work and labor. But regardless, God is meeting those needs. And we're going to have to learn, if, if this year is going to count, we might as well mark it down, uh, put it down in the margin of your Bible or in your mind, or if you journal, write it down. God can provide. And you'll find that in December of 2020, if you've lived with that same faith, that resoluteness, if you've allowed him to be the one that meets those needs, you'll find a laundry list of ways in which God has met those needs. So the Lord looks at his disciples and says, hey, listen, God can provide for all these things and he cares far more for you than he does for the ravens or for the lilies. And and in that context, in verse 28, he says, if then God so clothed the grass, which is today in the field and tomorrow is cast into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O ye of little faith? Turn with me to Matthew chapter number eight, Matthew chapter number eight. And let's look at a second time that our Lord rebukes the unfaithfulness or the lack of faith. In, uh, in the lives of his disciples. And by the way, I, I'm not saying any of this. I hope, I hope this, that you perceive this. I'm not saying any of this with a fussing spirit. But I don't think the Lord was fussing at his disciples either. I think he was trying to elevate their vision. And I think he was trying to get them to get their eyes on something other than a thousand worries and anxieties that so often crowd in around our life. He was trying to get their eyes on the Lord and on his promises. Matthew chapter number eight. Verse number number 23, now this is a familiar passage of Scripture, and you may not be familiar with it in Matthew 8. It's found in the other two uh, synoptic Gospels, and in fact there are similar occasions found even in the Gospel of John. But in Matthew chapter number 8, verse number 23, the Bible says, When he was entered into a ship, his disciples followed him. Behold, there arose a great tempest in the sea, insomuch that the ship was covered with the waves. But he, Jesus, was asleep. His disciples came to him and awoke him, saying, Lord, save us, we perish. And he saith unto them, Why are ye so, why are ye fearful, O ye of little faith? Then he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. But the men marveled, saying, What manner of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? We're going to have to, in 2020, if we're going to live it for Christ, keep our eyes on him, make this year count, we're going to have to learn to have faith to trust his protection. His protection. Why did the Lord rebuke them for this? Now, I'll be honest with you. I, in the realm of human reasoning, I sort of sympathize with the disciples here. 
Uh, I, I, I would have probably been nervous about it too. I, I'm not, you know, I, I didn't grow up in a great port town, not unless you consider Knoxville a great port town. I've not grown up on the sea, on boats, on the ocean. Uh, these men, though they had grown up around them, uh, the storm was so mighty and was so tumultuous that even these experienced fishermen and sailors were made nervous by it. I would have probably been a wreck. I mean, I, I would have been, I would have been taken, I, I, you could have called me Jonah. I would have told him, throw me out of the thing. I'd rather just drown than, than sit here with my stomach tied in knots. Why did the Lord then turn around and say, why are you fearful? Why are you fearful? And then he said, oh, ye of little faith. Another place it's recorded for us that he looked at him and said, where's your faith? Where is your faith? Well, the very simple reason is this. Because their belief and their resolute confidence in his protection was grounded in and based in solely what they believed about him. Now, he had revealed to them that he was the Son of God, that he was the Messiah of Israel, that he was the Christ, that he was God in the flesh. And now, in the midst of their turmoils, in the midst of their trials, let me tell you something, waves have a way of dissipating your theological foundation. Storms have a way of driving away the things that you knew when the skies were clear and blue. And they knew all these things until that boat started being thrown around the sea. And now all of a sudden, here's what happened. They forgot who he was. And I'm not saying if you had sat them down with pencil and paper and given them a quiz that they would have got the wrong answer. But I'm saying they were not behaving in a way that betrayed a, a faith or a belief in the personage of the Son of God. The truth of the matter is, and this is such a beautiful thing, uh, there was no possibility of that boat sinking. None whatsoever. In fact, we read this and we miss what is the primary miracle. I don't know if you saw it, but uh, the miracle is, is not that he calmed the waves. Now, that is a miracle. But the Bible says in verse 24 that the ship was covered with the waves. In John's account, it says that the ship was filled with the waves, filled with water. I don't know about you, but usually when you fill a boat with water, it sinks. See, there was a miracle there before the miracle they recognized. You know, that's often the case in our lives. Most of the time, we'll have a miracle that we're praying for and seeking for God to do. And we'll miss 700 other miracles he's done along the way because we've got our focus on that one thing we're obsessing over seeing God do. And they missed that first miracle that transpired. But the fact is, there was no chance this boat was going to sink for one simple reason. Jesus was on it. Jesus was on it. It would have literally been an impossibility for that boat to have sunk. It would have derailed the providence and the plan of God. It would have derailed the destiny of the Son of God. It would have disrupted God's overarching plan of redemption for humanity. I mean, there were, there were, there were powers and influences and stakes invisible to human perception that safeguarded and vouchsafed this little boat. And in that moment, there was one simple thing. They didn't have to know all that. All they had to know was who was in the boat with them. And if they believed he was who he said he was, then they had no reason to fear. Now, let's take this into the realm of our life. I don't know about you, but I'm not climbing on any boats in the Sea of Galilee anytime soon. Not that I know of. But I do recognize that if I've given my life to Christ, and if I have allowed him to be the administrator of my life, if I'm where I am because he's put me there, then I might as well be in his boat. I might as well be in his ship. And there may be seasons in which it seems as though he's fallen asleep. It seems as though he is not as present in the midst of my storm. You know why he hadn't got up? Because there wasn't nothing for him to do. I'm going to say that again. I want you to hear it. You know why he hadn't woke up? There wasn't nothing, Brother Kenny, for him to do. 
Now you say, well, he calmed the sea. Well, yeah, he calmed the sea to calm the sailors. He didn't have to calm the sea. That boat was not going to sink. You know why he hadn't got up? There wasn't nothing for him to do yet. We look at our storm and say, God, why haven't you got up yet? He says, I ain't got nothing to do yet. I'm not done with the storm. When I'm done with the storm, I'll calm it. But in the meantime, trust me that my presence is sufficient, that my protection is immutable. We have to have faith to trust his protection. Turn with me over to Matthew 17. Matthew chapter 17. This is, I think, a very familiar passage of Scripture, particularly as it relates to this matter of faith. But I want you to consider it in maybe a way different than how the TV preachers preach it to you. Matthew chapter 17, verse number 19. There was a little boy, the disciples, Peter, James, and John, at least, had been on the top of the Mount of Transfiguration. And they had seen the Lord in his transfigured glory. They had heard the voice from the cloud. They had seen Moses and Elijah. They'd been sort of dwelling in the glory, the, the glory of his majesty, Peter would later call it. But they had to come down off the mountain because there was a broken world and a hurting world at the foot of it that needed the Lord. So they come down off the mountain, and when they get there, they find there's a little bit of a dispute going on. And uh, they see this tortured, warped, broken young man and his weeping father there with him. And the disciples are gathered around discussing, debating, and the people are standing around waiting, anticipating something to happen. And Jesus walks into the situation, as he so often does. And they come to... Jesus and the father says, I brought my boy, he's possessed of a devil, and I brought him to your disciples to heal him and to cast out this devil. But they could not. They could not. And the Lord looks at his disciples and he really, he rebukes him is what he does. He says, how long shall I be with thee, thou faithless generation? And he casts out that devil from that child. Well, when the crowd dies down and the fellow has gone home with his new son, The disciples came to Jesus, verse 19. Then came the disciples to Jesus apart and said, Why could not we cast him out? See, they were genuine. They were sincere. They wanted to be able to help people. And Jesus said unto them, Because you're unbelief. You didn't believe. You didn't have faith. For verily I say unto you, If ye have faith as a grain of mustard seed, ye shall say unto this mountain, Remove hence to yonder place, and it shall remove, and nothing shall be impossible unto it. Now, let me pause there. That's not really where our thought is, but let me pause there and say something. That's where Creflo Dollar stops. <laughs> That's where Benny Hinn stops. They don't want to go on to the next verse. They want to tell you that, that uh, let me tell you, faith has the power to move mountains. But the power of faith is it may be enough to move mountains, but the purpose of faith is not to move mountains. I want to say that again to you. The power of faith is able to move mountains. But the purpose of faith is not to move mountains. Faith is not a party trick. The will of God is not to give you the ability to move mountains. If you did, you'd make a mess of things. So would I. You'd have the Smokies hung up somewhere in Oregon or something. Faith is not there to move mountains. It has the ability. And the Lord tells this to His disciples to remind them of the great power that faith does indeed have. That it was not a limitation in the ability of faith that caused them to not be able to cast out this child. Because if it was the will of God, then if you only had faith as a mustard seed, you'd have the ability to cast out uh, that devil. You'd have the ability to move a mountain. 
But he's saying this to them. The purpose of faith is not to do those things. And your problem is this, that uh, you have a desire to do those things. You don't have the trust of God in order to do those things. Uh, You want the power, but you don't want the process that comes along with faith. And he says in verse number 21, how be it this kind? By the way, that word how be it, you know what that tells me? Faith can do all these things, how be it? That tells me casting the devil out of this boy was bigger than moving a mountain in some ways. How be it this kind? Well, what kind does he mean? Well, the kind that Satan's had in bondage since they were a little child. The kind whose life is so wrecked and battered and broken by satanic power and influence that uh, it's literally the devil just trying to do everything he can to kill him. Not even taking pleasure and joy anymore and torturing him. Torturing him was casting him in the fire and the water often. That kind, this kind, the hard kind, in other words. This kind goeth not out, but by prayer and fasting. In other words, the Lord says this. If you, you could not cast him out because you didn't have faith. The problem is not that faith is too weak to do such a thing. Faith has the ability and potential and power to do anything. That's why the Bible says with God all things are possible. But the problem is you went about this, boys, in the wrong way. You thought that faith was a party trick to elevate your own status and prominence. And you walked in like those seven sons of Siva did in the book of Acts, uh, snapping your suspenders and, and plucking a feather in your hat and, and just strutted in and thought you'd cast him out. But that's not where faith comes from. Faith doesn't come from the will of man. It comes from the will of God. And so he's saying the only way you're going to have the faith to face satanic power and influence is because you've been spending time alone with God and you have a clear vision of the promises and truth of the word of God and that your faith is rooted upon and based upon what God has said. Uh, you know why Jesus could walk down that mountain and cast out that devil? Well, it's true the devils were subject unto him. It's true he was the son of God. It's true that he was God in the flesh. But a big part of the reason is he's been up on top of the mountain in prayer, spending time with his father. And he came down ready for spiritual warfare. I would say this. We need in 2020 faith to trust his power. And to trust, and this isn't even in my notes. That means it'll cost you an extra dollar fifty. Just leave it, leave it up here on the remembrance table when you leave. But to trust his process. To trust his process. Faith cometh by hearing, hearing by the word of God. The word of God's the answer to our problems. You say, well, preacher, if I have faith, you won't have faith without the word of God. Because faith cometh by hearing, hearing by the word of God. You say, but preacher, if I just believe hard enough, well, why would you believe? You only believe because God reveals something to be true through his word. Anchor your faith upon his word and you'll have his power. Uh, We have to have faith to trust his power. That There's nothing we're going to face in 2020 that God's not big enough for. There's nothing you're going to face. I don't know what this year holds, but I'll tell you this. I've been in this thing long enough. I'm not naive to the things people face. There, there's, there's going to be folks that in this next year you're going to face sicknesses that you didn't plan for. You're going to lose people you thought you'd have another 20, 30 years. You're going to face things with your youngins and your grandkids that you thought would always happen to somebody else would never happen to you. And I'm just here to tell you that whatever you face, there's nothing you'll face that God's not big enough for. Trust His power. Do things His way. Follow his process and his plan. Live for Christ and you'll find that he's powerful enough to face anything. And then finally, and I'll be done tonight, turn over to Matthew chapter 14. Matthew chapter number 14. Here we have another stormy sea scene in the word of God. Although this one does not focus on the disciples at large, but it does focus particularly on one disciple. 
Matthew 14, verse 22, the Bible says, And straightway Jesus constrained his disciples to get into a ship, and to go before him unto the other side, while he sent the multitudes away. And when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up into a mountain apart to pray. And when the evening was come, he was there alone. But the ship was now in the midst of the sea, tossed with waves, for the wind was contrary. And in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went unto them walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, It is a spirit. And they cried out for fear. Straightway Jesus spake unto them, saying, Be of good cheer, it is I, be not afraid. And Peter answered, boy, if we had all the times, if we had a nickel for every time the Bible says Peter answered. Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it be thou, bid me come unto thee on the water. And he said, come. When Peter was come down out of the ship, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. But when he saw the wind boisterous, he was afraid and beginning to sink. He cried, saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched forth his hand and caught him and said unto him, O thou of little faith, wherefore didst thou doubt? When they were coming to the ship, the wind ceased. Now, there's a lot of things we could say out of this passage, but I, I'm choosing to focus in on one. Peter asked the Lord, Lord, can I come to you? The Lord said, yes, Peter, you can. Keep your eyes on me. Keep your focus towards me. Step out of the ship and walk to me. If you keep your focus on me, Peter, then you'll make it to me. If you get your eyes off of me, get them on the waves, start to deviate, turn to the right hand or to the left, you're going to sink. But keep your eyes on me, Peter. Keep your focus upon me. You'll get to me. Now, Peter does the exact wrong thing. That's probably what I would have done. He gets out there and the waves, the Bible says, were boisterous. And he got his eyes off of the Savior and onto the storm. And he began to sink. And it is in that context that the Lord rebukes his faith. says, O thou of little faith, wherefore didst thou doubt? Now again, there's a lot of things we can say about this. But can I just boil it down to something real simple? Jesus and Peter had a plan here. It was summarized... In just a few words, Lord, bid me come to thee. Come. That was the plan. It's very simple. And Peter deviated from it. When he deviated from the plan, it was laid out in those few simple words. He began to sink. What a picture we have of our life. You know, we want all the details of the will of God. But if we really want it summarized, you know what it is? Lord, bid me come unto thee. He says, come. Can I tell you what I know the will of God is for you in 2020? I tell people all the time I don't like trying to tell people the will of God because I get it wrong for my own life half the time, <laughs> the alone telling other people. But I believe I can say this with scriptural authority. It's the will of God that you come closer to Jesus in this next year. And I believe that everything that God orders in your life in this next year, He'll order it in such a fashion as to draw you closer to Him. And I would just simply say this tonight. We're going to have to have faith to trust His plan. That he knows what he's doing. That his command is sufficient. That his way is right. That what he has ordered for our life is profitable. And is the means and method and way and path of us getting closer unto him. God wants you to draw closer into his presence this next year. And if you'll just trust in the coming days and the coming months in his plan. Say, but preacher, I don't always know his plan. No, but you know certain things. Peter didn't know what every bit of the plan for his life contained, but he knew what the next few steps were. The next few steps were, come, get out of the boat, come towards me. That was the next few steps. That's all he needed to know. When he got his eyes on anything else, that's when he began to sink. You may not know what the next 40 years holds, but you probably know what the next 48 hours holds. 
You probably know what God expects out of you. And I'll say this. I'll brag on you. Don't tell the Sunday morning crowd I did this, but I'm going to brag on you. You knew it was the will of God for you to be here tonight. You made the choice to be here. That's a good start, man. That's a good step. You know what the will of God is for the next few days. When the will of God, when it's time for you to know God, will make sure you know. But I'm saying this. Trust in His plan this next year. He's never messed up. He's not going to start with you. Do the will of God as it's revealed in Scripture as you know it to be. When there comes times that there are things that maybe you need a clearer answer on than what Scripture can give you, the Holy Ghost will lead you. He'll guide you. He'll direct you. But whatever you do, don't go to the right hand or the left. Stay in the center of His will and trust His plan for this year. Let's bow together as a musician comes to the piano. The altar is open. If God's touched your heart, I, I, I want you to come tonight. Whatever He may have dealt with you about, spoke to you about, I want you to be obedient to him. Father, I love you, and I thank you for this time. Thank you for the truth of your word. Pray that your people get help. Pray that they draw closer unto thee tonight, Lord. We'll be sure to thank you for it. We ask it in Jesus' name.